All right, everybody, can you, can you hear me? Ish, sort of. All right, gotcha. Well, um, I guess we have a couple minutes until, um, and we, we do now have some more people trickling in, so I guess uh, even though everyone has gotten silent, uh, we'll wait a couple more minutes to uh, start our uh, fracas over fracking panel. Maybe you can just tell jokes for a little while? Yeah. Does anyone have any fracking-related jokes? Yeah. <laughs> not, any not any clean ones. Yeah. <laughs> 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 or really, I should say they're clean jokes, but they're a risk of being dirty if not done yeah. the right way. Yeah, yeah gotcha. Or is it, uh, is it like Battlestar Galactica that uses the word fracking a lot? Yeah, well, Russell Gold was here a minute ago. Wrote all about it. He's up there. He wrote the book The Boom, uh, and he talks about the history of the word. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, think, I think he says Battlestar Galactica was the first appearance. And then was it one of the San Francisco newspapers in the early 2000s? Got it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So everyone should go buy Russell's book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and actually, that's a um, a good uh, spot for me to plug his, his panel, which will be just following this one. Um, also, will will deal with um, uh, some of the issues that we're we're talking about here. Um, that is uh, deconstructing the boom. Um, so, um, especially if, if folks have have questions that you know, if, if we run over and we don't get to everybody um, everybody's questions, like it might also apply to his panel because they kind of piggyback on each other. So. Um, just to check that one out too, but uh, anyway. So, so now that I think uh, I think most folks are settled, uh, let's uh, let's get started. Uh, my name is Jim Malowitz. I'm a reporter. I report on energy with the Texas Tribune, and I'm joined by a distinguished uh, um, panel of guests here, and I'll introduce them um, in a second. Um, just to get a couple things uh, out of the way, um, could everyone please silence their cell phones if they're not silenced? Um, uh, and uh, but of course you don't have to turn them off because we all want you y'all tweeting because um, that's that's what we do these days. Um, so you can use a couple um, hashtags um, if you want to tweet anything from the panel. Uh, hashtag Tribune Fest or I believe and I think they're both up there. Hashtag uh, TTF Energy so folks can uh, follow uh, what you're looking at. Uh, um, and uh, so this panel will be an hour, about an hour long. Um, we'll do um, try to keep about 45 minutes of discussion am amongst ourselves, and then um, we'll throw it open to questions. Uh, we'll have about 15 minutes of questions there. Um, but yeah, so thanks for 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 joining us here. Um, I'll introduce my distinguished panel. It's a, kind of an uh, interesting crew. Uh, to my left, we have uh, Ryan Sitton. He's the Republican candidate for railroad commissioner, and. Uh, Sitton is the uh, founder of Pinnacle AIS. Uh, it's a Houston-based uh, engineering company that focuses on integrity programs for the oil, gas, and petrochemical industries. And uh, Sitton's a, a native Texan and an Aggie. Um, he's uh, anxious about the uh, Aggies uh, game starting soon. Uh, and he's, uh, he's a member of the uh, Texas Alliance of Energy Producers and the American Society of Mechanical Engineers. And then uh, to his left, we have uh, Steve Brown, and he is uh, um, Sitton's uh, Democratic candidate, uh, Democratic uh, uh, opponent for railroad commissioner. Um, Brown is the former chairman of the Fort Bend Democratic Party, he, and he began his political career as a campus organizer for the Democratic U.S. Senate nominee Harvey Gantt of North Carolina, and uh, Brown serves on the board of the Youth Development Center of Houston and the Fifth Ward Enrichment Program. And uh, sitting next to, to Brown is uh, Ed Ireland. Um, since 2007, uh, Ireland has led the Barnett Shale Energy Education Council, and that's an industry-backed organization that is dedicated to promoting energy, education, and best practices in the Barnett Shale. Um, previously, he founded Energy Planning Associates and Gasmark Inc., and he served as president of Geosource Inc., and Ireland served on the board of the directors of the TCU Energy Institute. And uh, sitting next to Ed, we have um, uh, Michael Weber, 
Um, Dr. Weber is the Josie um, Centennial Fellow in Energy Resources and an Associate Professor of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, he is also the co-director of the Clean Energy Incubator at the, the Austin and, and at the Austin Technology Incubator. That's a mouthful. Um, his research focuses on the convergence of policy and technology related to energy and the environment. And uh, here's a, a, a plug. He, he's authored more than 200 publica publications, has holds four patents, and serves on the advisory board for Scientific American. So thanks for making us all feel bad about ourselves. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, sitting next to um, Dr. Weber, um, we have uh, Mayor Chris Watts. He's the mayor of Denton. Um, he was elected in May, and uh, he's born in Arkansas, but he raced to Denton by age one. Um, and he's a uh, vice chairman for public power for the United States Conference of Mayors uh, Energy Standing Committee, and he served as the board president for the Texas Municipal Power Agency. Um, previously, he served as a Denton City Councilman, and he owned he owns a real estate investment firm for more than 20 years. So I guess let's get started. Um, and uh, obviously, um, y'all are here because you've probably been hearing a lot, a lot about fracking. It's a, it's a sort of controversial issue and also often sort of misunderstood term. And uh, that's one thing that we've all been kind of talking amongst ourselves about is uh, sometimes uh, the, the misuse of the word fracking and, uh, you know, sort of the idea of like some folks might use it uh, synonymously, uh, synonymously with, with drilling. And I, and I just want to ask uh, um, Dr. Weber, um, you first, um, do, do you see this as an issue with um, um, kind of folks, uh, are, are folks confused about what fracking is? And since you're the, uh, the expert, can you just uh, walk us through the process of, of what it really is? Sure. So no problem. I think uh, the language matters and the words we, we use and the words we select for energy uh, reflect some interpretation we have, either a positive or negative connotation. So the words do matter. I do want to take a moment just to point out that I took uh, U.S. history in this classroom. <laughs> and so it's, a, it's very strange to be sitting on this side rather than that side. But, but I did well in that class. So I'm feeling okay about it. And then um, my father was a professor here for 40 years in chemistry in this building upstairs. So I feel like he's watching over me. I'll do my best. The, um, the words matter in fracking is a shorthand for hydraulic fracturing, at least in the modern parlance. And hydraulic fracturing has two components. One is hydraulic, which means water, and fracturing, which is cracking the shale open. And that is an indication of the type of process that's used to complete the well. There's drilling and then completion. And the drilling is not so different than conventional oil and gas drilling that's gone on for 100 years or so, though with some technological advances. And the fracking or hydraulic fracturing is the way you finish out the well or complete the well to open up the resources to get them to flow in a way that's productive and economic. And the, the words have been shortened over time in a variety of ways for literary shorthand to make it convenient so it doesn't sound so technical. Industry uses it as shorthand for a while. Environmentalists adopted the shorthand as a pejorative because it sounds like an F word. In fact, it is an F word. Uh, it's an F word with a K, kind of like fire truck. So uh, it's uh, one of the so so different people have adopted the term as a shorthand or a pejorative over time. And so industry is moving back to hydraulic fracturing as a more precise and technical word that sounds actually intimidating. And the fact that there's confusion around it is, I think, revealing of the underlying aspects of the debate. The debate is around a technical aspect. It's a scientific thing. And uh, people are often worried about, for example, earthquakes with fracking, and that's not really an issue. The earthquakes come out elsewhere with wastewater injection. And the, the concerns that have come out around water quality are actually around the drilling, not the fracking, that kind of thing. So there are a lot of issues around fracking we have to be aware of. It's not always where people think they are and for the reasons they think they are. And that becomes important because if you're a policymaker or a politician, you're trying to address it, you have to address the actual problem, not the problem that people think there is. And so it has a policy manifestation. And so I think getting the terms right, getting the language right, and getting people educated on it is an important first step in the process. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And, and you're, you're nodding along too, Ed. Is that something that you're coming across, you know, as, as you're leading the, uh, um, you know, um, 
the, the consortium in, in, in the Barnett Shale. Are you worried about the way people are using the terminology? Yes, and it's, it's become so uh, frequently misused. The term uh, fracking in, in a lot of cases is uh, used to, to refer to the whole process, the entire development uh, process from start to finish. And uh, that does have some implications when it comes to making policy uh, that you're, you're focused on the wrong thing. And so hydraulic fracturing is uh, a very specific process, well completion technique, and the fact of the matter is, for most wells, certainly the wells in the Barnett Shale, uh, where I'm from, uh, it only takes a week. So the fracking process or hydraulic fracturing is not, does not take place over a period of time and years. It takes place in a week. So it's, it's very sh- short. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And, uh, and, and Steve, you're, you're, um, you know, you're running for railroad commissioner, and uh, that's, that's uh, you know, one of the agencies that's um, um, you know, regulating fracking and drilling. Um, uh, w- within Texas, and uh, you on your campaign have, have talked a lot about fracking, um, and, and um, you've sort of campaigned as this public advocate that's going to take a look at uh, environmental and, and health impacts, and I'm, and I'm wondering if you could just kind of talk about um, some of the things that, that, that you've been speaking about on your campaign, and uh, what you see sort of specifically dealing with fracking that um, you, know, you think the state needs to take a look at. Yeah, thank you uh, for that question. Thanks for having me. Um, I think it's important to recognize that Although there may be some folks um, in the public, the general public, who um, may not be aware of all, all the technology and kind of lump things together, there are a lot of folks throughout the state who are well-versed in what the process is and how it impacts their lives. Uh, and I think that as a state, we have gone too far to limit or to um, excuse ourselves from thinking that we have all the answers that we know. Um, more about things than everyone else. And I think part of being a, a policymaker, being a politician, is the education process, too. We want to make sure that, that the general public is where they need to be in terms of knowing um, uh, the process and the challenges and the risk involved. But at the same time, don't discount their ability to influence that process as well. And so I think that is um, uh, so one of the, the gaps in this, in this thing is that you know a lot of folks in the community that I've talked to they're living it. They know exactly what's going on. They know the process and the steps and the phases. Um, and, and they just want to be heard. They want a voice at the table. Uh, and right now they don't feel like they, they have that and they don't trust the process to allow them to be empowered enough to have that say. So I think it's important that, you know, when, when we talk about things like this, uh, make sure that, that we don't discount the fact that there are a lot of folks around the state who know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, there might be a small percentage of folks who lump things in together, but there are a lot of folks out the state, particularly in the shale communities, uh, who are very well versed in what's going on and just want the opportunity to, to chime in and to be able to impact policy outcomes. Ryan, and, and uh, um, obviously you're running against Steve, so it's, uh, it's good for you to weigh in on this. I mean, do you um, feel like as you're running for railroad commissioner and you're traveling throughout the state talking to folks, um, listening to, to concerns and, and, and so forth, do you feel like, you know, as you're running, you there, there needs to be any, you know, additional, you know, regulations uh, implemented on the railroad commissioner. Are we kind of um, doing just fine in terms of um, um, how we're regulating fracking and how we're well regulating, uh, you know, things like well integrity that, that folks sometimes lump into in, into the fracking debate? Sure. Well, first of all, let's talk about the, the same thing that everyone else has been talking about, which is the level of knowledge out there amongst the, the general population. Certainly when you deal with people who are in the oil and gas business or who are directly affected by it, there's a, there's a high degree of awareness. 
But we have learned, in fact, during our campaign, to, just to try and gauge where, the, where the, the public is in Texas. A surprising statistic, less than 5%, in fact, we think it's about 3% of the people in the state of Texas know that the Railroad Commission regulates oil and gas drilling and production. Only 3%. That's a surprisingly no, low number when you want to have an educated dialogue, uh, not in the language of politics, but in the language of science. What is happening here? Why do we know that these practices are safe? Most people are unaware that fracking's been going on since 1949. So they, it's, it's talked about as if it's a brand new technology and that we are still figuring it out. And in most ways, we have millions of examples that we pull from. So we have very good data. And that's the kind of stuff you want to share with all of the people in Texas who are affected by this industry so that there's confidence. Now, all that said, let's shift to new regulation. You know, there are areas because we are always developing new technology. And you mentioned wellbore integrity. Rule 13 was revised just two years ago to address new standards around wellbore integrity. And those are, these are moves, I think, that we should always be making. It, there's never going to be a point where we say, oh, good, great, we're done, we can go home. It's what is the newest abil ability of the industry to develop, what is best practice, where are we advancing in terms of technology, and we've got to make sure that our regulations not only keep up with those and, and integrate those into our drilling processes, but, but frankly keep Texas in a leadership role because we play such a prominent role in energy around the world. And uh, um, Mayor Watts, I see you on the end, and, and I want to definitely get you into this conversation um, in a second. But I, I, I do have a question for um, um, Dr. Weber, because um, we hear a lot, um, those who are sort of following the debate over fracking, or just the discussion over fracking, um, about this idea that you know, fracking is an old technology. You can read it in Russell's book um, of, of when it originated. Um, but there's this sense of, there's sort of this argument, it's an old technology, it's, it's time-tested, but all of a sudden, you know, we're having this boom now. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, what's different now um, and, and what are we, you know, why, why is there a learning curve in, in, and, um, in what we're dealing with in Texas? Sure. There are a couple pieces that made the boom happen now. You'll, you'll hear about it, I think, in the panel later today as well. The idea of fracking is not new. Dynamite was used for fracking in the 1860s. There's been a variety of forms of hydraulic fracturing. And the latest combination of technologies for the most recent wave was hydraulic fracturing with a chemically enhanced mix of frac fluids, as well as horizontal drilling. So it's the hydraulic fracturing with the chemical mixtures, um, sort of slick water fracking, that kind of thing, as well as horizontal drilling. Those two technologies made a big difference. It wasn't the technologies alone, though. There's a variety of things that happened that came together. And I like to call it sort of the trifecta of technologies, markets, and good government policy. The markets were functioning very well, and that prices were really high. And so there was a market signal sent to produce more and drill more. And this happened really around the 2005-2008 time frame when oil was above $100 a barrel, $147 a barrel, and natural gas is at $13, $14 per million BTU, and today it's like $4, so prices have dropped a lot. So high price signals on oil and gas sent a signal to go produce more and explore more. So the markets were highly functional. Government policy was clear and stable. A couple things had happened with government policy over several decades. The Department of Energy had invested in the R&D for hydraulic fracturing for several decades in a very stable way, supporting men like George Mitchell. And so you had government policy that, in a very consistent way, supported the R&D for new production techniques, recognizing it would be useful at some point, and then also clarified the regulations for the injection of the water in 2005, the Energy Policy Act 2005, clarified that hydraulic fracturing would not be regulated by the EPA as a wastewater injection method. And so you had policy stability and policy clarity combined with market forces, combined with technologies. And they all said the same signal, which is drill and produce more. And for the 40 years before that, we had government policies and market signals saying different things. They weren't always aligned. And so we finally had a convergence of price, technology, and policy. 
and that led to the boom. That's sort of my interpretation sure. of what's happened. It's like, why now? Well, because all those things were finally in concert and mm -hmm. saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And, uh, and, and Mayor Watts, um, you know, I, 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 we, we have you here because we're having an, you're having, of course, a very interesting uh, discussion, if you want to call it, in, in Denton. Um, Denton, uh, if, if any of you don't know, um, could become the first Texas city to ban hydraulic fracturing, uh, uh, depending on a, a ballot or proposition that, um, whether it passes in November. I'm wondering if you could talk about, um, and maybe going back a little bit to our discussion about terminology, that kind of thing, do you have any sense of why this has become such a political issue in in, in Denton. Well, thank you, Jim. I think, uh, and it's been interesting to hear the panel because I think one thing that's been left out of the discussion is that, yes, fracking has been around, oil and gas drilling has been around for years and years, at least in the city of Denton. I can't speak for other communities, obviously, out west in Midland, but that's they were used to that type of drilling activity in a close urban environment. But in Denton, just up to 10 or 12 years ago, 13 years ago, people were still selling their property and selling their mineral rights. All right? And once it was discovered that the Barnett Denton was in the Barnett Shale, the southern part of, of the city of Denton is basically in the Barnett Shale. So now all these types of techniques, all this, this uh, policy making to encourage drilling now began to come onto the scene in, an, in a highly urbanized uh, environment. And so I think that was, the, that was the mitigating factor that really began to move this kind of discussion from sort of a real technical kind of policy making discussion to a real grassroots discussion of, okay, well, now we're going to be doing this drilling in potentially people's backyards, allegedly. Um, so therefore, how do we do, deal with it? Well, in Denton, we, we've got 255 wells right now, and the, the explosive growth of the uh, shale development combined with the explosive growth of the surface development has sort of created this, this collision course. And as that occurred, and I think we can see it at the national level, and I think we can see it at the state level, that meteoric rise of this type of development in an urban area, we are beginning to try to catch up regulatory-wise with these advancements in technology. My understanding is uh, most of the wells early on in the Denton development were vertical wells, just people plugging holes in the ground. You know, uh, With the advancement of, high, uh, of, vert, of horizontal drilling, now you've got an opportunity to minimize the types of well sites, but, but you also have a longer duration of production times, uh, and your, those lateral lines are going out further. So, Technology in that area increased, but I'm not so sure that regulations have necessarily kept pace with that. And, and so I think that's really what happened was the convergence of that. And finally, um, there was uh, some drilling activity that occurred fairly close to a residential neighborhood. Probably, I think one of the wells was within 187 feet of a house. And that really was the spark that began to, to push this movement forward. Uh, just to give you a little history, a petition drive was initiated to uh, create a hydraulic fracturing ban in the city of Denton. Yeah, the petition was certified. It was brought before the city council. I think it was on July 15th. Uh, the council had two options. Council could approve the ban on its own and therefore make it a valid ordinance or could deny the ban, thereby putting it on the November ballot. Uh, Seven-hour public meeting, 100 speakers, and the city council voted to send it uh, to the community to, for a vote, and that's where we sit. Mm -hmm. and, and if I recall, you have not sort of, you know, come out on either side of this, but you've said, you know, it should be put up to a vote, and that's kind of that's where you are. That's yeah. correct. In fact, there's state law in place that once a public official uh, places something on the ballot, they cannot use any type of state funds or any type or city funds, city assets to advocate for or against that proposition because you have called for an election. Mm -hmm. That's correct. And oh, well, I was kind of the, the urban boom is an important part of it. We haven't had an urban urban oil and gas boom since 100 years ago in Los Angeles, so the, it it is different this time. 
in terms of where it's taking place, you have different stakeholders involved who aren't used to it, mm-hmm. and that's a big change. I'd like to add to this too, actually. I think that in Denton what's happening actually is, is a quintessential example of the, the, the misunderstanding involved with fracking versus what, the, what, what issues are available. When you look at the, the very public information out there about concerns of the Denton citizens, you'll hear concerns about noise, dust, generators, lights, flaring. All of those things may or may not have anything to do with a frack job going on. They may be due to just regular drilling techniques. So the fact that the, the hot button has become fracking, hydraulic fracturing, uh, whereas these are the concerns, shows that there's, a, there's an education that needs to happen there, not just in Denton, but around the state. Well, uh, also, uh, I point out on that, technically it is written, is a, a ban on hydraulic fracturing. That's correct. But in reality, it's a ban on drilling. Because in the Barnett Shale, no one will drill a well if they cannot complete it using hydraulic fracturing because it's a useless hole in the ground. Uh, it, it has to be completed use, using hydraulic fracturing. So technically, it's a ban on hydraulic fracturing, but in reality, it's a ban on drilling. And, and, and actually, you know, and, and I, I think that's like a really interesting part of this debate is this idea that you ban fracking and you, you ban drilling, and, and we can sort of getting, get into the nuts and bolts of, of um, Texas law, which we'll, we'll still steer clear of for now. Um, but I do wonder, you know, when you're talking about horizontal drilling, is it really a ban on drilling? I mean, because technically, you know, maybe, it's, maybe, you know, maybe you're not able to you know, drill most wells you know, kind of where you would want, but you know, is it possible to sort of set up you know, outside of the city limits and still um, you know, tap some of the gas that, that would be under city limits? I mean, is that um, sort of a valid critique of that argument? Uh, I would say that the, the, the issue, I mean, of course, when you look at the 255 wells in Denton, you know, certainly you're not, you're not banning activities outside the city limits of Denton. But the issue is, well, what, what's the, where does it stop? So if, if cities and counties and groundwater conservation districts, I mean, there's lots of, lots of city and, and municipal and local uh, governments that could put in place potentially restrictions. So I think philosophically is the, is, the, is the statement that Ed brings up. If you start to ban this technique, when you look at all of the major development, the new resources across the state that have meant so much to our economy over just the last five years and have played such a huge role in our reduction in dependence on foreign oil. I mean, all of that is due to this expansion in um, hydraulic fracturing, or sorry, expansion of these, these shale plays that have been due to the hydraulic fracturing technique and horizontal drilling. So I think that, that you can't ask the question just in the context of Denton. You have to talk about, well, if, if it happens here, what, what, is, what does that mean for other cities, other, other government agencies around the state? And, and Steve, do you, do you believe that there will be some sort of domino effect if, if you know, um, the fracking ban passes? Well, I, I think the fundamental challenge that we're facing, and I think Denton ex- exemplifies this, is the fact that the folks in Denton who saw fit to put uh, forth a ban um, uh, on the ballot or to propose a ban um, are folks who felt so out of the loop and so uh, unempowered as it related to what was happening with the industrial activity in their communities. And when you give these folks or gave these folks no other option but to take matters into their own hands, this is what you end up with. I think the fact that we started out the conversation um, talking about the challenges of urban and suburban um, fracking or industrialization Um, And then at the very core of it, you have these silos that are built up where we don't even think that we're talking the same language. I mean, you know, we're just in in the conversation we had on the panel. We're under the impression that folks are talking different languages and and meaning things that are different to different people. And so um, 
that lack of communication, that lack of discourse, that lack of confidence in being able to talk to communities and allow communities to chime in to the decision-making process has brought this community to feel like they had no other means to get their point across but to put forth this type of, of, an, of an initiative. Um, and that is the sore problem with uh, what the commission that we're running for, I'm running for, the Railroad Commission, is that you know, we, we, we have not created an atmosphere or a culture where communities throughout this state feel like they have a significant or substantial say in the process and how we determine what may be a best practice for urban or suburban drilling uh, or what may not be a best practice and what things might uh, be better placed in certain places than other, in other areas of the state. Um, but without that conversation and then with us thinking that we're talking over and beyond each other's comprehension, then we're not going to get to the place where we can sit down at the table, figure out what's best for the state in these different regions, um, and then at the same time making sure that people feel like they are empowered to be able to, uh, to, to impact outcomes. Mayor Watts, do you, do you feel like you've had a good conversation with state regulators, or has it kind of been Denton up well, to... I want to go back and answer your, your question or make a comment on do you see this as a potential domino effect. <laughs> I think as you read the papers and accounts of different communities who are being faced with this very situation... I think that's why Denton has sort of become the epicenter, just because we're the first larger community to really have to face this head on. And I, and I was glad to hear Michael say that urban drilling really hasn't taken place, because I really believe that that really is the, the, the main crux here. And I think it's incumbent, and I think by what's going on in Denton, that uh, as we see this begin to pop up in other communities, I think it's going to be incumbent upon us to enter into a dialogue with state lawmakers, with environmental groups, with the Railroad Commission, with the home builders, with the industry and, uh, to, and homeowners to begin to try to craft uh, a, a set of solutions that can evolve with also the evolving technology because I think that's important. I mean, you can't have one set of regulations for a, a type of technology and then as it evolves and progresses that somehow they stay stagnant. Uh, but I do see it as p potentially beginning to pop up and I think it will, as it is on Denton's doorstep, I think it's now becoming part of, of a higher conversation that definitely needs to occur. Sure, sure. You do have several other communities, that, you know, nearby too, even even Dallas passed a particularly strict um, um, drilling ordinance and, and they're getting a legal pushback on that too. Um, I'm wondering, you know, when, when you talk about coming together, um, Mayor, you know, to, to craft some sort of solution to this um, surface versus subsurface um, conflict, are you thinking you know, solutions at the surface in terms of setbacks, that kind of thing, you know, state setbacks, or are you thinking, is this more of sort of a, an evolving dialogue that has to happen to make sure that, you know, good players in the industry are, are staying good and, 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 and bad players aren't sort of wreaking havoc, that kind of thing? I think it's a combination of both, Jim. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, each locality is different, so I'm, I'm a strong proponent of local control. Mm -hmm. I'm a strong, strong proponent of reflecting the community values within our regulation. But, of course, we have higher policy initiatives and higher policies, energy independence and the like, that, re that make it incumbent upon a higher level of dialogue with, with state legislators and with railroad, th those people who are actually regulating this. So I think it takes a conversation about, as far as having a statewide drilling ordinance, no, I don't think that's the solution. I think it's a matter of finding out what is available to be controlled in the local municipality that reflects the value of, of its community. But, and not uh, make a detriment and not hurt the property right. That's what we're really talking about here is individual property rights, both of the subsurface mineral estate and, and of the surface estate. So uh, in Denton, that conversation 20 years ago moved. Today, 
it's uh, even to the point where it's become popular, uh, it's become so important in, in the state that the Texas Real Estate Commission a few years ago promulgated a mineral uh, form for residential contracts to address that issue because it became so confusing. So I would, I would want to not direct the conversation to a statewide one-size-fits-all um, policy. But if I, if I could just add real quick to that, um, although the notion that we can do a statewide policy uh, might not be manageable, but there should be a predictable process where uh, every locality can have some comfort and, and, and some assurance that the process itself, work, itself works. And as a result of that process, you will have every stakeholder uh, be able to chime in on the best solution for that locality. And Ed, I'm, I'm wondering sort of the industry side, do you have anything to, to add to that? Well, yeah, there, there's a couple of things that are very unique to Denton because I'll just point out, uh, we're talking about the Barnett Shale right now, mm -hmm. uh, 20,000 wells have been drilled in Barnett Shale, and that's 5,000 square mile area in North Texas. So you've got uh, millions of people living among 20,000 wells and uh, in concert, uh, except in Denton right now. And um, one of the unique uh, factors in Denton has been the, the permitting process. And that is, if you go back to the, about the year 2000, which I think is when some of the first wells were drilled in, in Denton, um, the... Uh, city of Denton didn't have a gas well permitting uh, department. It was the fire department that gave permits. And they gave a permit for an entire pad site, a platted pad site. And that permit was in perpetuity. So whoever owned that pad site could drill wells there forever because they had a permit and it lasted forever. Um, and those original pad sites were in, in the middle of nowhere at the time. I mean, it, and Correct me if I'm wrong, Mayor, but these, uh, they were, uh, you know, not in populated areas. Then the city grew that direction and surrounded these existing pad sites, uh, and the, the, by the city permitting rules, uh, these houses could be built 200 feet or 250 feet from an existing pad site. So you had houses that were built legally 250 feet from a pad site, a pad site that was permitted to drill on previously, that's the conflict, mm -hmm. as I see it, is, is that you've got home builders and an oil and gas operator exercising their property right, and so, those so, are in conflict because of the permitting process. So, so, so what is the solution to that? Is that more local control or just better run you know, well, local government? Well, let, me, let me address that, because it, it's not entirely accurate how you described it. Uh, there are some, a, a few circumstances like that as far as the permitting. And yes, and a great example of that is Denton's regulation on setbacks back at that time frame was 100 feet, according to the fire code. But as time has gone by, we've tried to adjust to the community sentiments. So uh, as far as what caused it, I think there are solutions for it. Uh, and I think it takes this level of dialogue, including all the stakeholders, and I, I want to concur with you. That's what's most important is that, that we have everybody at the table because I think that's the only way you're going to find the maximum solution for this, because in no way I don't believe that anybody's trying to say one property right should uh, trump over the other. This can, that it can coexist, but it's going to take a lot of effort to figure that out. Absolutely. And uh, Ryan, do you feel like there's any role for the Railroad Commission in, in this type of debate, or is that something that needs to be kind of left to the legislature, or what, what are your thoughts about sort of this conflict that we're talking about? Sure. You know, it is, um, it's, it's very part of the Railroad Commission because here you have a state agency that has specifically over the last few decades grown in their capacity and in their, their personnel and their expertise specifically to work on these issues. 
So if you've got an agency of 700 and something people with engineers, geologists, scientists who are working on this and studying this constantly, who can bring that level of expertise and absolutely need to be, you know, our job is to make sure that citizens are confident in what's going on out there. So as we as elected officials serve the population, that we are supporting that and we are bringing the expertise to bear to do that. Uh, you know, I live in a small community in, uh, just south of Houston, 35,000 people, and, and our mayor and city council, uh, who I know, uh, would be very challenged to make these types of judgment calls because they don't have the, the resources or the expertise. So the Railroad Commission's got to be very responsive, and ultimately we have the oversight of the legislature who, who oversees our budgets and oversees our operations in terms of uh, approval to make sure that, that there's another line or another group of people overseeing the way we do business uh, in terms of the, the business of the Railroad Commission. So I think absolutely we've got it. We have to be really not only responsive but really integrated into these discussions in local communities. And once again, not just in a political way. We have to be very, very much foremost. Let's talk about the science. Let's talk about what's going on. What data do we have? What research has been done? I think that's where you get the confidence. Anytime this bubbles into a, a political discussion, uh, we've 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 come up short, and that we've got we've got to do better than that. And uh, um, I. I promise I wouldn't throw up many jump ball questions, but I'm going to right here. Um, and sort of in, in the context of, of this Denton debate, um, yeah, I was at the um, uh, the, uh, the city council meeting that lasted till 3 a.m. when they ended up punting the uh, the ban to voters, and uh, it, it came up a lot, sort of from both sides, this idea that that in Denton, you know, the, the real problem might be um, you know a small set of kind of quote unquote bad players in the industry, um, and maybe that's still debatable. I'm, I'm wondering. Um, if, if anyone, um, either, either um, mayor or, or Ed or whomever, is, um, is, is it possible that um, sort of you know certain energy companies you know that might not be you know using best practices might be sort of I guess, ruining it for the rest of us? Is, is that an issue here in Denton or, or elsewhere? I don't know if you have a but maybe I'll jump in while you prepare a correction to whatever I'm going to say. But the, uh, <laughs> there, there's a saying out there that every barrel of apples has a few bad ap- apples. You ever think? There's a saying, a few bad apples every barrel. That's the wrong saying. The actual saying is, it takes just a few bad apples to quickly ruin the whole barrel. Because apples put off ethylene, which causes other apples to to rot, which is sort of an interesting phenomenon. And whether you believe the saying is the first one or the second one will affect how you respond. If it's, well, there's always a couple bad actors, then you have a sort of a permissive approach. If you have the attitude, well, we can't have even one bad actor, because that will get permission to the rest of the bad actors. We'll change your policy approach. And I think it'd be better for all the apples not to rot to sort of deal with that. Like, no bad actors are allowed. Everyone has to meet a certain standard. We have to meet a certain level of professionalism and a threshold of performance using best practices that makes everybody feel safe and comfortable and meets our economic goals and environmental goals. So I really think that the, the saying about apples has been distorted in a way that gives us a sense that, well, it's always going to happen. And we could probably achieve a higher standard. Mayor, do you feel like, is that a, a fair characterization of... Um, I don't know if it's your stance or, or at least some folks on the, on the city council, this idea that um, it was sort of bad apples that, that has uh, created some of this tension beyond just sort of the um, fundamental surface versus subsurface issues? I think that in the context of, of the city of Denton and the operators that are within the city of Denton, uh, for the most part, most operators will recognize and, and, fa- and act within our, our most current oil and gas well ordinance. Uh, we do have... Uh, operators, operator that uh, is a little bit more challenging uh, in that regard. So I think it would be incumbent upon us to make sure that, you know, whatever we decide, whatever is crafted at whatever level, local, state, 
that it, it applies across the board, and I think that's why the, the conversation is so critical in an urban environment. I, I really can't stress enough that right now this, this is really, from the, from the Denton's perspective, mm-hmm. an urban drilling question. If you're out, uh, you know, many miles outside of town, in fact, we had a well blowout um, probably about, I guess, six months, a year ago or so, and, and it was out by our airport, which is a little bit more rural setting. You know, three or four homes had to be evacuated, and it was about a nine- or ten-hour event. And so you have to think, well, if that was in a more residential area, how do we deal with that? I mean, and it may be a very small percentage of, of, of that occurrence, and, and I understand that. So uh, it, it is sometimes, at least in Denton's experience, that most of our operators have, have worked well with, with the city and worked well with the community and the residents. In fact, we've got some that... Uh, when it comes to a subsurface conflict and a, and a mineral conflict as far as, well, your pad size here, we want to develop around it, what can we work out? They work it out. Uh, and, and in the end, I think that's what really, we all really want, but yet we do have to have some rule of law that does govern sort of a standard level of behavior. And Ed, was there anything you wanted to add on to that? Well, yeah, I would say that the, um, it really it's been well publicized uh, in, in Denton and uh, in Fort Worth papers. That it's really and you said it, one operator that's the challenge, it's an apple. It's not a bear. One bad apple. (laughs) Right. And uh, so when you look at it that way and say, okay, there is a challenge there, Um, maybe everybody's operating legally, but, you know, there's some challenges, Uh, you still don't ban an entire industry. I mean, that just doesn't, that's not the way it should work. I mean, I think rules and regulations can deal with that. Uh, Negotiations can deal with that. But banning an entire industry is not the way to go. If I could, I'd weigh in too. You know, this is uh, what people are often interested to learn is that as an industry, you know, there's, a, there's a common perception out there that, that industry people, as we, as we meet in our policy discussions, that there's a perception that industry would like to have no regulation. And the, that, that couldn't be further from the truth. Most people, almost, almost everyone you'll talk to said, we want good, consistent, scientifically based regulations because folks in industry are concerned about the same thing. We don't want one bad apple spoiling the whole barrel. And we know that it only takes one and a particular bad incident to cause these issues. Uh, and by the way, it, it, when it comes down to it, one of the things that the Railroad Commission has to do when there are those bad, particularly those, there, there's one discussion about operating, quote unquote, legally, but in a way that might be antagonistic. There's another one in which they're, they're violating a, a rule or a regulation. Uh, we've got to be swift and direct and be aggressive in addressing those things. That's, I think, where you build confidence in your citizenry, in industry, in the voters, because you know that, yeah, across the board, most, most companies are, are owned by guys who are landowners and who really want the good, good things for the state of Texas. And on the occasion where there's someone that, that isn't, isn't living up to that standard, man, they are, they are dealt with uh, swiftly and, and directly. And uh, I, I guess I'll, I'll pivot a little bit away from this because we have probably only about 15 more minutes of the actual discussion before um, uh, Q&A. But I wanted to make sure that we get um, uh, water into this discussion because that's obviously um, one of the, the big issues that's, um, I mean, uh, the water issue throughout the state of Texas, you know, it's, uh, we've been in drought for years. Um, and uh, obviously we, we do hear a lot of, um, even kind of, maybe not conflicting statistics, but different ways to look at the amount of water that fracking uses. Um, I mean, on the one hand, you often hear that, uh, you know, water uses, was it less, perc- uh, less than 1% of, of water statewide, but then there are the local communities that, um, where um, fracking uses, you know, large percentages of water. Um, is, is, is it fair to um, criticize or critique or um, uh, to 
sort of t take a look at fracking through the lens of water? I mean, is this a serious issue, and, and is there sort of a, a push in the industry to, um, uh, to try to rein in water use? Um, I guess I'll start out with you, Michael. Yeah, so I say this is something my research group does a lot of work on at UT, and it's something we think about a lot. And I say that water is a fair concern uh, for a variety of historical and environmental reasons. One is that uh, there's no alternative to water. So if the water gets ruined, I don't know what else we'll drink. So people have a right to be concerned. A lot of the risks are overblown, I would say, but the, the risks are real, but overblown. There are a variety of risk points to water quality, and there's water quantity issues. Uh, the risk points are when you're drilling through the aquifer. If you don't case your well properly, you can introduce the risk of chemicals getting into the aquifer. There's a risk of fracking, but that's approximately zero. There's very little problems from the fracking itself and chemicals seeping up uh, against gravity, things like that, towards the aquifer. There, the risks tend to be bigger actually at the surface, where you might have a, a storage pit for wastewater that's not lined and the things can trickle back down to the aquifer, or in trucks that get in an accident and have a surface spill or something like that. So there are a variety of, of risks with water. They tend to be not where people think they are. They think it's a fracking, but it's actually everywhere about the fracking. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be on the surface, not below ground. And it's not from the uh, frac fluids, but from the wastewater and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of confusion about the water. That's a quality piece. The quantity piece is another one. The wells require something like two to nine million gallons per well, more typically three to four million gallons of well. And that water goes in. It's usually fresh water plus salts, although you can use brackish water, treated wastewater, salt water. There are other things you can use. You can actually reuse that water in some cases. So you put a couple million gallons in, you get a couple million gallons back, and you might get more back than you put in. You might get less back than you put in, depending on where you are, and what you get back is pretty nasty. It's nasty because of what you put in. It's also nasty because of what was already there. So this is dirty water you don't want to drink that you have to handle in some way. And we handle it in Texas mostly through wastewater injection and disposal wells. So we have a lot of trucks bringing water in, a lot of trucks taking wastewater out, injecting it. And if you inject it in the wrong place, you can cause an earthquake, which makes people angry. And uh, if you do it the right way, <laughs> it works out. Yeah, people don't like earthquakes for whatever reason. So the, uh, if you inject it the right way, it's actually an environmentally sound and safe way. So the, the issue there of quantity is the competition for water. Statewide is 1% or something, no big deal on average. But we don't deal with averages. We deal with local issues where it might be 35% of the local water. So in there, it feels like real competition with agriculture. I would say, as an engineer, this is an entirely solvable problem. It is a real problem and a solvable problem. There are ways to do treatment and reuse. There are, uh, sometimes that's a contract law issue. Sometimes landowners require a producer not reuse the water and then require that producer to buy the water from the landowner. So the landowner will make money off oil and gas and then from selling water, and they will prohibit the reuse. So there's a role for state uh, policymakers to get involved in that. And so we can solve a contract law and regulations and a lot of technologies. We've got a lot of flared gas and a lot of wastewater in the same place at the same time. You can use that flared gas to treat that water mm -hmm. and then reuse that water. You can set up markets between agriculture and the oil and gas industry. Oil and gas has money, wants water. Agriculture has water, wants money. You can put them <laughs> together and trade money for water. And the money from oil and gas, because they can pay so much more per barrel, essentially per acre foot, than ag can, pays for the irrigation efficiency at the agricultural site. Mm -hmm. And they then have the money to reduce their losses, still grow the crop, lease or sell that water to oil and gas. They have uh, water for their production, and there's leftover water for the rivers. It would do that the right way. In fact, a student doing research on that is in his room right now. So she, there's research on that going on ET about some of these solutions. So these are real problems. People have a right to be concerned. The stakes are high. Uh, accidents are difficult to recover from. But they are entirely solvable problems through a variety of market policy and technical uh, approaches. And, and, and right now, if I'm correct, uh, I mean, there, there's obviously a, a big push towards uh, recycling, reusing water, um, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, and the technology is there, but it's still oftentimes much more, um, much cheaper just to still purchase fresh water, that kind of thing. And so we're still 
moving towards that. I'm wondering, Ed, if you I need to speak to something you just said, because yeah. you said it's much cheaper. It's interesting, when you look at certain areas around the state mm -hmm. where you have large concentrations, say one operator, one, some of the larger operators, they're seeing the economics are actually there to, do, to recycle, and so you're seeing recycle developments pop up. New technology is coming online uh, that, you know, constructed wetlands and things like this that have never been used before uh, in large scale to recycle water. And so the industry is moving that way, and you're seeing a lot of really good research done. Uh, and you're seeing, too, in key areas, uh, like, like, we were just, like he was just talking about, where you have, in this particular area, there's a water shortage. The water's much more valuable. And so municipalities are getting in the game and constructing uh, new facilities to recycle, and then they're partnering with the industry to come in and say, look, instead of paying to dispose of the water in a, in a normal disposal well, why don't you come over here and we'll recycle the water? So there's big advancements going on. I, I don't want to uh, – you threw that comment out about the economics. The economics are not – quite that, that drastic, and they change depending on where you are in the state. It's really and, interesting. And, and I guess my jump ball question then is, um, you know, obviously, you know, still, I, I think uh, the, the stat that I was talking to the Texas uh, Water Recycling Association and uh, the estimates that still, like, probably only about 1% of um, um, operators' budgets are um, Toward, that, that are put towards um, uh, disposal are used for recycling. I'm wondering, so uh, is our trajectory fine? I mean, are, you know, is, will the technology evolve to where we're, you know, at a fine um, place for, for recycling? Or are there other, you know, incentives, those types of things that the states um, or, like, localities need to implement to kind of move us quicker? I, I'm wondering, there's my jump ball question if anybody wants to Well, let, let, let me in. take that because we, we put forth a plan not too long ago to incentivize uh, the industry to move this quicker, to increase the tra trajectory of it. Um, because I don't know that, I don't believe that the pace that we're going uh, is going to allow for the sustainability of water resources as we go into the next decade and the decade beyond that. And so obviously there is an opportunity. I mean, you know, we have this rainy day fund that is created almost entirely because of oil and gas receipts. But we love to just point at it and say, hey, look how, how great we are. We have all this money saved up. Um, but why not invest a small portion of that money into research and development, into uh, tax incentives that allow for operators to be incentivized to speed that process up? It's not a matter of does the technology exist. I think it does exist. I want to make sure that um, it's the right technology and that we're not creating different problems by trying to solve this one. Uh, but the technology exists. I think the interest exists um, by operators to want to do it. Uh, it's just a matter of making sure those two things merge in the marketplace. And I think the state does have a responsibility to ensure that that happens. But in terms of the quality issue, because that is a, a very distinct issue as well, um, we have to make sure the right stakeholders are at the table. And I know that there are a lot of groundwater conservation districts throughout the state that feel like uh, are, are dissatisfied with the role that they play in the permitting process, ensuring that uh, the well integrity and the casing is, uh, is satisfactory or adequate. Uh, to protect local aquifers. Uh, and so we want to make sure that those guys are at the table. I mean, you know, leadership is a, part, is a matter of being able to aggregate interest towards mutual goals. Uh, and from what I'm hearing on the stage, uh, everyone has uh, as a best interest of the state to make sure that we have water and quality water uh, moving forward for the next generations. So the question is, now what do we do about it? You know, what, what steps will we take to make sure that that process happens in a more deliberate fashion as opposed to let's just see kind of what happens naturally? And, and I'm wondering, Ed, yeah, but what will it take? Well, yeah, I mean, or, it's, yeah. uh, you know, markets work. And uh, very high on the list of, of research and development in, uh, in the industry now is water. 
because it, water is expensive to buy, it's expensive to handle, expensive to recycle, expensive to dispose of. And so uh, the markets are working, and uh, there's a lot of research being done in waterless fracks, uh, propane, uh, nitrogen, uh, you know, just using no water at all, but uh, also a lot of research going on in using brackish water. And uh, so the, the, the large companies that do the hydraulic fracturing are uh, now looking at the, uh, you know, additives that will enable them to use the, uh, the brackish water and therefore not have to tap the, uh, the drinking water. So somewhere between waterless fracks and brackish water and, and other technologies, I, I think we'll, we'll see this move away from the current quantity of water that's being used. Yeah. Yeah, the broader trend on that, I think, I think you were at I was at an industry conference uh, about nine months ago, and an industry person said very boldly, the industry will not be using water for fracking within four years. It'll, I think he meant fresh water. I think it'll be brackish or something else. But there are the propane gels, other approaches. And it's because of the cost, it's because of social license to operate. That is the flashpoint that really angers people. People are particularly angry about the trucks and what are the trucks carrying? Water and wastewater, that kind of thing. Uh, my, my prediction on this, if you follow the trend lines, is that within 10 or 20 years, oil and gas companies will be oil, gas, and water companies. That instead of being a competitor for the water, they will be a provider of the water because they handle so much water. Oil and gas companies in Texas handle several times more water by volume than oil and gas. They're really water companies today that happen to have very high-value byproducts, oil and gas. They're in, across the nation, it's more like seven to one. So most of their effort and energy and money is actually spent handling water, but then we dispose of it, or they dispose of it. And when they get to the point where the technologies, the cost points, the markets are all functioning the right way, and they can use their technology and engineering capabilities to treat and sell the water, they will be a source of increasing statewide supply by several percent for water, and so they go from being the competitor or user to the provider. And I think that's going to change. That's happening within the next decade or two, just following the trend lines of where their R&D investments are and where their activities are. Yep. If I could add on this, to, you know, this is, um, to have a conversation purely about oil and gas water use, frankly, is a little bit, is a little bit um, we're cutting ourselves short. We've got to look at a large-scale infrastructure. And the legislature's worked on this a lot over the last couple of sessions because, as we've talked about, the amount of water used, I think the, the amount of water used in hydraulic fracturing is something like 0.4% of the water used in the state of Texas. In fact, that is what it is. By comparison, that's less than, that's one-twentieth of the water we use to water lawns in this state. So to talk now in certain areas, it certainly is a bigger percentage, but we've got to keep that in perspective. We could eliminate every ounce of water used in oil and gas, and it will not address the long-term water challenges that we face as a state in terms of infrastructure, population growth, other sections of the economy, agriculture. So, we, so, so solutions that are carved out just based on an oil and gas usage are, are I think, very short-sighted. We've got to look at, okay, how does this fit into a broader scale approach? Which, which municipalities, which areas do we have to have recycle water uh, capabilities, not just for oil and gas, but for all of the users of water in that area? And I think that is the only way that we as a state really progress in terms of long-term water usage. Oil and gas is a piece of that greater pot. Okay, and, and, and with that, I think we'll, we'll go to questions if anybody wants to migrate towards the microphone. Uh, cause we, we could just keep going on and on, but uh, we'll have another panel that can probably... Um, uh, We'll sort of piggyback on this too. So, um, and I guess uh, you were first, sir. So, if you, if you want to ask a question and introduce yourself. Well, first yourself. off, um, the biggest brain on all of this is sitting on your panel, and I would say it would be all of y'all, but I, I just want to step up to the mic and say how brilliant Mike Weber is. And he now owes me $20 out of his fee. But, <laughs> but Mike is actually, Michael, you've been in the forefront of really trying to keep this conversation going. But let me, let me play off something that, that's been discussed. I think in an earlier panel, 
with the Water Development Board and several others. I think, Ryan, you said something that hits, and that is we've got to stop talking about water from scarcity because in the reality we have lots of water. And frankly, the reason why Israel in Singapore now 72% of their water is reuse is they don't call it wastewater, they call it new water. And we literally have water all across the state. So the question, the question is, is that to get to some of the water, we have to change some of the rules and regs that EPA, EPA and TCEQ call hazardous water for us to actually do demonstration projects in the state. So I'd be interested, whether it's the mayor in Denton or others, what do, can we do to create the greatest global test bed in the world in Texas to put this technology at play by changing the rules and regulations through demonstrations? Want to grab that? I mean, I guess... Yeah, so, so I, uh, I think what it sounds like you think we need is a big R&D project, and as an R&D guy, I say, you're right on, yeah, let's do it. Uh, and my research group's looking for sponsors, so that sounds correct. So the, uh, I think that you're exactly right. We actually have plenty of water that's not water scarcity. It's just the water is the wrong form or in the wrong place or available the wrong time of year. And so we spend energy and money to get it to the right form, right place, and right type of year. I wrote an article a couple months ago called The Ocean Under Our Feet, talking about the brackish water resources in Texas. We have a degraded resource below our feet that for over 100 years we've been walking over, knew about and never produced because it wasn't economically viable, and that's called shale and shale gas and oil. And the same is true with brackish water. We've got a degraded form of water that we get, got a lot of, we know it's there, but the technology markets policies haven't been there in a way that let us produce it in a way that's environmentally compatible and all the other things. But we have the resource. And so with the right markets regulation technologies, we can get there. The regulations are tricky because the regulations are based on the legacy of the water, not the quality of the water. If the water ever was wastewater, it will always be wastewater, even though you might have boiled it and made it perfectly clean water. So getting the rules changed, getting the policies updated with the modern sensibilities would be useful. That's a hard thing to do. The way you get there usually is with money and effort. So a couple billion dollars in the state to invest in some uh, pilots and R&Ds and some real test beds probably is what it will take over a decade or so to change it. I'm optimistic that could happen, and I think the way that happens is when you have severe drought like we're going through now, people are starting to get serious. In all honesty, though, I'm not sure we're serious enough. If you look at how much water people use around the world to say this is zero, here's Dallas, 265 gallons of water per person per day. Here's Austin, 165 gallons of water per person per day. San Antonio, 135. Here's Australia, 40. Australia is serious about water. I'm not sure we're there yet because we're watering our lawns. I think you already heard. So... So I don't feel like we quite have the frenzy or the, or the fear that Australia had when Australia said, you know what, we're going to start from scratch. They made real water markets with better policies, and the problem kind of got solved. And then it rained, of course, right, the minute after they got that done. So our policy has always been to pray for rain, and that's always worked. And so, you know, but we wonder, <laughs> although I think, was it three years ago, Governor Perry prayed for rain, and then we had a wildfires the next day in Bastrop. So everyone's kind of like, okay, that guy can't pray anymore. For so the... Uh, the uh, so we, we have to think maybe praying for rain needs another layer of policy effort above that. But I, I think there is a lot of resource in Texas that we could be the test bit for the future on that. And we have another question here on this side. Hi, uh, Michael Martyr, Department of Physics, UT Austin, and uh, Conflict of Interest Disclosure. I actually get money from Shell for uh, researching the shelf, uh, shell fracture. Uh, but I have a worry that I've had for a long time. It's a real question. I never knew whom to ask, and now I can ask it. Um, there are a lot of technical accomplishments that made... Uh, 
fracking possible, and the well casing was one of them. But the sort of scenario that's worried me is not now. It's 10 years from now, 15 years from now. Wells become unprofitable. A company goes bankrupt. They walk away from 1,000 wells. They're not capped properly. They, stop, they start leaking. Yeah. Are there safeguards being put in place now to provide resources then for a problem that we might generate now when the money is flowing in? I can answer that. There, there is a – actually, at the Railroad Commission, part of the, the fees that you pay go into uh, oil field cleanup funds so that if that were to happen down the road – and one of the things that we have to value, by the way, is the, is the growth and the size today. But to exactly your point, if down the road there is an issue, a well begins to leak, and there is not a leaseholder or current operator who has responsibility to address it, that the Railroad Commission could address it, the exact problem you're talking about. Yes. A quick observation, then a question. I, I just I was up in New England where they started recycling uh, uh, wastewater for the ski slopes, and that was great until somebody put up a bumper sticker that named the particular uh, resorts and said, where the affluent meet the effluent, <laughs> and that ended very quickly. So there's a huge education and public relations campaign that's, you know, that's to come. But my question is, it seems like the issue in Dennis, as I understand it being framed here, uh, is that you have the, the uh, intrusion of residential into industrial. And we're in a state that's expecting, uh, Dan Patrick says we need to plan on the population doubling in the next 25 years. So you're going to have to map out a whole bunch of areas that are problematic and look ahead uh, in your planning, just as the per, uh, last questioner had. Uh, that otherwise you're going to have dead zones that will impede the growth of the state where all our planning is based on that. So I just some notion as to how conservative should we be about land use? Well, I, I know in the city of Denton we begin to look at that in earnest because as we begin to evaluate our situation with land uses with oil and gas well plats on the ground, with surface plats then coming to the oil and gas well plats, how do you create those two kind of interests that are compatible together. Because if you have a, a gas well plat of 50 acres, are you saying that you can't put a 50-acre subdivision on that site? You can, but what it takes is to, be, to get ahead of the process, to craft the appropriate regulations that will allow both that mineral estate to be able to develop, because by Texas law, they are allowed to. They are the dominant estate. But you also have to make sure that that, that surface estate has the same ability. There is a... Uh, Texas Natural Resource Code, I think it's Chapter 92, that addresses that specific policy. It's a 30-year-old statute that states that, hey, as the, as the towns and cities grow, this convergence of mineral and subsurface estates are, are going to happen. And how do we do that? And they've given some indication of how they do that at the state level through the Railroad Commission, uh, through certain types of rules and regulations. So I think it's incumbent upon our city to continue to evolve the regulations. What, what Ed was talking about was reverse setback. In other words, here's an oil and gas well right here, and then it's, it's in a 100-acre farmland pasture. Well, somebody buys it, and now they want to put the homes, and the homes will encroach up to that. Well, the, you've got several questions. You know, does the city locally create a big, huge buffer around that, which creates a dead zone in that surface interest to develop? How do you manage the disclosure process of that? You know, you want to make sure that everybody has enough information. Hey, we've got a site right now that has been the epicenter of this whole debate, vintage neighborhood, gas wells been put up, the, the surface developer is literally building houses within probably 200 feet. And people see it. People are looking at the house, and they still purchase there. Well, I don't know if I want to take away 
their right to do that, but I certainly want to make sure that they have enough information to know that that's there. So it is something that I think we've got to get ahead of, and the city is working on that currently right now, and I think that's why it's incumbent upon the lawmakers, Railroad Commission, and all the stakeholders involved to really engage in that conversation, because if it's happening in Denton, it's going to be happening in, in other communities. And I want to address the water issue, because I know uh, at the city of Denton, it, this, this brackish water, uh, I went to El Paso many years ago as a council member and toured their desalination plant. As I thought about that, wait a minute, there's no water in El Paso. They're getting it under the ground. They're, they're, they're creating drinking water from brackish water. Uh, so I saw that firsthand. Uh, Wichita Falls is recycling wastewater, and I think you are right. It's an education process. It's a process that you have to convince people that what they're drinking is not something else. Uh, and, and that's hard, but, but we are working on that. Uh, we're not working on that in the city, but we are trying to make sure that we use our water resources correctly for the future uh, because it's important. I mean, there's been some medians that we have converted from highly treed landscape water intensive vegetation to sort of zero scape like you would see out in Phoenix or something like that. Beautiful. Looks beautiful, requires very little water. Right. Okay. And we have a, another question over here. Sure. Uh, since you're right now talking about education, and before I give my question, I guess I'll uh, give the disclosure as well. I work for Dr. Weber, but <laughs> she's <laughs> he a did, student who did that work I was is talking that about. Twenty dollars more. Yeah. 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 You're, you're the next biggest question. brain on water. Yeah. Is there? Okay. Yeah. yeah. He did not plant this question, and actually I'm not going to ask about water. Um, many of you have talked about the importance of education you just did about educating the public, um, how there's not public knowledge necessarily about where the environmental issues are. Um, we blame fracking as a process, but it might be drilling that's actually causing what, we're, what our concern is. Um, and you've been talking about the importance of education, but do you have a plan of um, how we should get that information out other than that we should get that information out? I'll take I'll take a swath at it because it's interesting. Both my parents are teachers. I uh, grew up in the Irving area. My dad teaches physics, actually. My mom teaches chemistry, and um, I'm an engineer. I don't know how that worked out. I uh, during the during the campaign process, my first time to to hold a, if I'm successful, be the first time to hold office, and um, you learn a lot about people's engagement in the political process. Um, and just tell you an anecdotal story that I thought was really interesting. We we did it what's called a teletown hall at one point. So we get on the phone. It's basically a massive conference call, and there was. 2,000 people when we started the call, and I gave about a 15-minute introduction, and then we talked afterward. Once we got the call, the lady who, was on the, who coordinated the thing told us, you know, if you uh, normally when we do these, they, within six minutes, however many people you start with, you start with 1,000, within six minutes, half are gone. Six minutes after that, another half are gone. So 12 minutes in, 90% of the people are gone. We talked for 45 minutes, and 80% 80 of the people stayed on the phone. And we didn't, because I didn't talk politics. I talked about what's going on in the state, where production levels are, what's going on. We had a lot of people just ask, what is fracking? So I spent all this time on the phone talking. People were asking questions and staying engaged. So I, what I learned from that experience was, it's anecdotal to our campaign, but it was that people really are engaged in this. We just got to figure out the medium to talk to them. And so when it comes to a plan to do that, uh, things like town halls and teletown halls, which make it easy. Somebody sitting at their house answers the phone and says, sure, I'll listen to this guy talk about what's going on in oil and gas. That's, that's where we as elected officials have to, have to really step up our game because <clears throat> these days with the Internet, there's so much information out there, and it's so easy for someone to put information out there that is, could be misinterpreted or is frankly false. So we've got to do a really good job of putting not just good information out there but in a way that allows people to ask questions. 
um, and where we can, once again, continue the dialogue and, and give them resources to get more information. So, so there's a, we have a, a pretty aggressive plan to do that and continue to do that over the next six years. Uh, and, and let me just say that I, I think that we have to come to grips with the fact that some of the miseducation or the, 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 the unknown awareness of what's going on uh, is somewhat deliberate. I mean, you know, our oil and gas regulatory agency is called the Railroad Commission. Right? So, I mean, that doesn't help in engaging people as to knowing where to go and get more information from. So um, there are some things that are, that are structural challenges to educating the populace. Um, one, not misnaming the agency, and then, but, but beyond that, making sure that the right people are notified when permits are being applied for. I mean, it's amazing to, to, to go around the community and to go to areas in the Barnett Shell and the Eagle Fort Shell and other parts of the state where folks look up and say, well, we had no idea. We did not know, right? And so making sure that um, we are deliberate in our true intent to make sure that people are aware of what's going on. Uh, and that is a motivational aspect of this process, which is why as a, as a culture, as an agency's culture, we have to make sure that its culture re reflects that willingness and that openness and to be transparent and to engage. And then I'll say, um, it's going to be incumbent upon those good apples in the barrel to demonstrate the best practices in terms of engagement, uh, because you know they're the guys who are they're the only protectors of their brand. Okay, and if so, they remain quiet and allow for the bad ac uh, bad apples to cause any type of um, rottening the barrel of sorts. Uh, that's on them. You know, they have to be be in a position to make sure they're protecting their own brand. And that includes making sure that the public and the community and society has some faith and confidence that what they're doing is mutually beneficial, not only for profits, but also for the public health and the well-being and the quality of life of those folks Great. in those communities. And we have uh, time for one more question, it looks like. Hi. Um, there are organizations advocating for a nationwide ban on fracking. And when I first heard about this a couple of years ago, I thought it wouldn't go anywhere because... The oil and gas being produced is too important to our economy and our national, national security. And also exactly what Michael Weber said, that the, the problems really are due to other aspects of the drilling process, not the fracking itself. But this, it seems to be gaining momentum now, and certainly in other states it's gained a lot of traction. And I just wondered, I, I don't want to get complacent about this. Do, do any of you see that this might continue to to gain traction and actually have an impact on the oil and gas industry uh, in Texas and, and in the country. Like the domino effect questioning? Well, I, I agree with you. I, th I think it is uh, potentially a, a problem. And, and you're right, the debate usually gets framed as uh, fracking, to ban fracking, just like uh, in Denton. But uh, really, it's an anti-fossil fuel movement. And uh, I think what we've seen uh, in, is the, the uh, anti-fossil fuel movement has kind of moved from the, the national level to the local level. And, uh, and, and it's happening, um, uh, Alpine, Texas uh, is, uh, you know, a little town down out in West Texas, and uh, really there's no drilling there. But the city council, uh, you know, is, is adopting a, a ban on uh, hydraulic fracturing. Uh, it, it's really just to, to get another town on the list, so to speak, and uh, so they can take that list to the next town and say, see, Alpine did it, you need to do it too, and, and uh, just to build up the momentum in that. So uh, I think you're right. There is some uh, movement in that direction, but 
uh, I think we can only hope that in the end the importance of oil and gas and energy to our economy will prevail. And I think, too, what, what I don't want to get lost in this, this discussion is two things. We were talking about education, and I, I think that what's happening in Denton, whatever side of the issue you land on, one effect that it had, has had is educating the community. It's brought us to this place. It's elevated this, this conversation, which has a myriad, I think, of very uh, good potential benefits. And, and as far as um, what's going to happen with the domino effect, I think we can't lose sight of all the other problems or issues that may arise out of the drilling process other than hydraulic fracturing. I mean, I had a guy call me at 10 o'clock one night. And I think it was, I don't know if it was the fracturing process or the drilling process. He said it was like sitting at the 50-yard line of his high school football stadium during a game because of the lights and sound. So there are other issues surrounding this that I think we can really have a great opportunity to help mitigate in an urban environment. I'll go back to an urban environment. So uh, I, I think it's very much a strong possibility that will happen. It's happening in Texas, and that's why I think it's incumbent upon this conversation to be elevated to a different level, level to try to resolve some of these issues. All right. Well, uh, with that, uh, I appreciate you all joining us. And if you can give our panelists a round of applause. <laughs>